Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, welcome to the Above Board Podcast. This is your host, Dave Lynn, and I'm a partner at Morrison Forster, and I practice in the areas of public company counseling and corporate governance. And I'm very pleased today to be joined by my colleagues, Spencer Klein and Brandon Paris. Uh, Spencer is a partner at Morrison Forster and serves as co-chair of the firm's Global Mergers and Acquisitions Group. Uh, Spencer focuses his practice on mergers and acquisitions and related matters such as proxy contests and takeover defense counseling. And Brandon is a partner at Morrison and Forster and serves as co-chair of the firm's Global Mergers and Acquisitions Group. And he represents U.S. and global clients, boards of directors, special committees, management teams and companies in a wide range of corporate transactions across a number of industries. Spencer and Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today. Our topic today is one that boards are always very interested in, and that is the topic of shareholder activism. I guess, Brandon, maybe to start off, what do we mean, generally speaking, by shareholder activism in this context? Sure. Thanks, Dave, and, and happy to be speaking with you today. You know, I guess just as background, while I imagine that there are different views of what constitute activism, generally we think of activism as a broad range of activities where a shareholder or shareholder group actively seeks to influence a company's decisions or strategic directions. And activists can take many different shapes and sizes. So when you look at the spectrum, there are large, well-known, dedicated activist investors uh, with names that everybody's heard of, Elliot, Icon, Jana, Starboard, etc. Then there are smaller, lesser known, dedicated activist investors, and also investors who are not typically involved in activism. You know, regular, long shareholders, former founders, management or directors of a company. And we refer to this last group as occasional activists, and we'll, we'll get more into this category a little bit later. But overall, you know, activists can utilize a broad range of tactics from private approaches to the board, to campaigns using public pressure, proxy contests, and even unsolicited acquisition proposals, including tender offers. And in terms of the activity of these uh, stockholder activists, how did 2022 compare to 2021, were they more or less active? Yeah, David Spencer, um, thanks for hosting us today. Just to put that question in some historical context, for, for about 10 years or so, we saw a fairly steady uptick in shareholder activism. And that changed in 2020. There was a bit of a drop off in activity in 2020 largely due to the COVID crisis and a negative perception that activists were worried about that engaging in public activism while companies were trying to survive and keep people employed would not be viewed kindly. That was coupled, of course, with increased market volatility and uncertainty. So there was a, a general drop off in, in activism in, in 2020. But since then, we've seen a reset of the market in 2021, followed by the downturn we saw starting in mid-2022. And through that time, there's been a fairly considerable uptick in activity, a return to more normalized levels, um, still slightly lower in those years than we saw 
pre-pandemic, but no reason to believe that there'll be any downshift in the number of campaigns as we enter 2023's annual meeting season. In fact, we're thinking that 2023 will look a lot like 2018 or 2019 in terms of its overall activity levels. And um, we still see the most activism in the tech sector, given significantly reduced valuations across the sector that has exposed a number of potentially vulnerable targets to activism. But no sector is immune. And unfortunately, no company of any size is immune to activism and, and companies across industries and of all sizes really need to continue to be vigilant. And with the uptick in activism in 2022, more broadly, did we see the number of proxy contests for board seats also increase? Yeah, it's it's interesting, Dave. So, you know, just for context, in the few years prior to 2022, um, just as Spencer was discussing, there was a there was a decrease in activity uh, in activism activity because of COVID and the optics around that, and so consequently, there was also a decrease in in proxy contests related to activism. In 2022, proxy contests increased generally consistent with the increased level of activism that we saw in 2022 that Spencer just touched on. And as COVID-related market considerations waned from the levels in prior years, activists focused much more on a company's fundamentals. Um, and you know we're targeting areas of vulnerable balance sheets and other things as they look to press on in their campaigns. We expect to see activism continue as a, as a constant presence in the corporate landscape. So from our perspective, it's, it's here to stay in one form or another. And as Spencer mentioned, no one's really immune from that. But having said that point, it's worth pointing out that several prominent activists lost shareholder votes in 2022 and activists won board representation in under 50% of the contests that went to a shareholder vote in 2022. And, you know, also interestingly, Activist funds lost around 17% in value in 2022 compared to deposit returns of 16% and 10% in 2021 and 2020, respectively. So the landscape is, is constantly shifting, but um, you know, we do expect it to be focused on seeing activism in one shape or another in, in the future. And what are some of the themes that you've been seeing in recent activist campaigns? So there are a few things I think we can touch on in response to that question. I think one thing to note is that while activism is focused on a very broad range of desired outcomes, one of the general themes we've seen increasingly over the last several years is that activists are focused in one way or another on M&A activity. And there's a couple categories in that we'll talk about in a moment, but broadly defined, M&A focused activism constituted 41% of all activist campaigns in 2022. And that trend continues into 2023. The first quarter of 2023 saw 44% of all activist campaigns focused in one way or another on an M&A related thesis. 
And those really fall generally into two categories, a, a proactive campaign and a reactive campaign. In the proactive category, we would include things like uh, affirmatively taking actions to try to put the company into play or to promote a breakup of the company, including where the activist makes its own hostile offer. And then reactive strategies are really focused on opposing an announced transaction, either because the activist prefers a standalone strategy as a way of creating value or to try to put pressure on the buyer in an announced M&A deal to uh, force an enhanced transaction that delivers more value to the shareholders, including the activist. So we see both of those as really central to uh, the focus of M&A activism over the last several years and currently. And I think we can probably predict that there'll be more of the proactive variety given current market conditions. Activists are going to continue to seek opportunities to generate returns and they may need to be more proactive in doing so by putting companies into play where they wouldn't have been able to otherwise capitalize on announced M&A transactions and the competitive dynamics of a buoyant M&A market, given that we're seeing a, a downshift in the M&A activity in 2023. So we would expect the mix to be more focused on the proactive type of M&A thesis than the reactive type. And then in addition to the typical M&A based campaigns, we, we continue to see all of the other types of focus that activists have used over the last many years, including focusing on improving profitability, improving margins, more efficiently allocating capital, and those, those sorts of things as well. So those will always be part of the activist playbook, and we'll continue to see that going forward. Yeah, and some, some additional themes just to tack on to what uh, Spencer said, and I, I mentioned this at the outset when we were talking about the landscape of uh, different types of activists, and one is activists who are engaged in occasional activism. And this has really been part of a general trend over the last decade or so. We see institutional investors and others um, being more sympathetic to, and uh, really in some cases embracing activist tactics to achieve their investment goals. So those uh, investors who you wouldn't traditionally think as being a quote unquote activist, you know, walking and talking and doing things like a traditional activist um, as part of their, as part of the thesis in their investment. So we see a lot more public campaigns by shareholders who don't necessarily engage in this type of activity as a core part of their investment thesis, but who use these tactics to uh, achieve a particular outcome um, in a situation that they're dealing with. We're also seeing activists continuing to use ESG considerations as wedge issues in advancing their campaigns. So as an example, Engine One's successful campaign to obtain board representation at Exxon, despite owning a very small percentage of stock, was a watershed uh, event um, in the market. 
Engine One was able to use environmental concerns to garner support of uh, Exxon's major institutional investors to really make a difference in that case. However, there you know there is growing political opposition to the overall ESG movement, and that may impact the ability of activists to leverage uh, those types of themes going forward. But time will tell. But another thing I'd mention is um, Brandon talked a bit about the occasional activism trend and the increase in activity by those who aren't necessarily dedicated to activism, but will use activist tactics as a tool. Uh, The flip side of that is something that's also interesting, which is we've seen some dedicated and prominent activists diversify away from activist strategies and take a more low-key approach. Uh, For example, Pershing Square's announcement that it would cease running public campaigns as part of its core strategy and focus instead on constructive stakes in well-performing companies is a fairly uh, interesting development given how noteworthy and in some cases aggressive Bill Ackman and, and his Pershing Square Fund have been. And we've seen other activists diversify away from purely activist strategies as well, including those that have pursued large acquisitions themselves, sometimes in combination with private equity funds and sometimes with their own private equity arm. So that's an interesting trend that we'll be watching as well. All that said, by way of cautionary note, I don't expect activism to go away anytime soon. And although there might be some diminished activity by some activists, boards certainly need to be ever vigilant in protecting the corporation and its strategy from short-term interests. One topic that we've heard a lot of discussion about in the context of activism is the universal proxy card. And what is that? And how do you expect that to impact activism in 2023 and beyond? You know, these days, you can't really talk about activism without talking about the universal proxy card uh, and the impact that that's going to have on the activism landscape. Um, and just, just for context, so historically in an uh, election contest, a traditional proxy contest, the company and the dissident shareholder distributed separate proxy cards and shareholders voting by proxy, so not those who are actually at the meeting, but using a proxy to vote, were generally unable to vote for a combination of director nominees from the competing slates. So, you know, the company has their own slate, the activist has their own slate, and shareholders voting by proxy would have to pick one or the other. Um, That's all they were permitted to do. The SEC's new rule, however, that requires a universal proxy card in contested elections, which, by the way, is now in effect, uh, allows each side, so the company and the dissident, to provide a proxy card that includes both sets of nominees and then refer shareholders to the other party's proxy statement for information about the other party's nominees. So with this new um, requirement that the SEC has adopted, shareholders can now mix and match from the two slates on either proxy card. And you're not left with the old regime of only being able to pick the company's proxy card, or the dissidents. So it um, changes the landscape pretty considerably. 
Yeah, Dave, it's, it, it is early uh, in the proxy season in 2023 to, to draw any real conclusions yet about the experience we're seeing. We'll certainly do some analysis of this after the proxy season is over, but this is the first year in which the universal proxy card is in effect for, for all companies. And so we'll be keeping a close eye on it, but there are certainly some things that we think are likely to result from the universal proxy card. One is that since shareholders can mix and match nominees from competing slates, we think it's likely that dissidents may win more minority representation. Since you can now decide to put one of the dissidents nominees or two of the dissidents nominees on the board, rather than having to vote for a whole slate, there's a, a, an increased possibility that shareholders will make that choice. On the other hand, election of a control slate may be less likely unless the shareholders perceive a real need for radical change or the dissident is proposing an acquisition that the shareholders favor. Otherwise, it seems likely that just as shareholders may choose to include one or two of the dissident's nominees on its proxy, that um, it may not include more than that. Uh, with the, the thought being minority representation may not be such a bad thing in the context of a particular company, but we're not looking to change control and hand it to uh, the activist. I think another potential outcome is that the ability to elect a minority slate might make it attractive for even more of these occasional activists that Brandon referred to engaging in in proxy contests because those folks some of them at least in certain contexts might have shied away from the expense of a of a proxy contest given the uncertain outcome but if it's more likely that you might get one or two of your nominees elected it might embolden some of these occasional activists to promote a slate and to engage in in a proxy contest one of the other aspects of this that we're going to be keeping an eye on is we suspect that there'll be a much greater focus now on the skills and credentials of the individual nominees of each of the two sides. It's not about the dissident's slate versus the company's slate. It's about the dissident's director nominees and the company's director nominees. And so there may be even more focus on individual skills and credentials and how those skills and credentials enhance the board, fit with the needs that the company may have and the like. And so this could certainly encourage companies and dissidents to resort to more personal attacks on the opposition's nominees, making proxy contests, which are never all that pleasant, even more contentious than they have been in the past. And in light of that, companies may want to take a look at their proxy materials and their related disclosures and their processes, including things like director biographies and skills matrices to uh, make sure they're focused on this potential, as well as just taking another look at their standard director nominee questionnaires to make sure they're soliciting all the information they might need. 
we also think proxy advisory firms may, may become even more influential than in the past because shareholders now will not have a binary decision. The directors nominated by the company versus the director candidates nominated by the dissident. But now it's, it's a much broader array of choices from among all the candidates. So that might make them look even more towards the advice of proxy advisory firms. And then finally, I'd say we expect that there will be a significant change in the dynamics of and the relative leverage in settlement negotiations between companies and activists. Most of these campaigns do settle in one way or another. But that dynamic of settlement is likely to be different given some of the other effects that we've talked about over the last few minutes. So those are some potential impacts as we get into the proxy season this year that we'll be keeping a close eye on. Yeah, and maybe the last thing I would just touch on to to close this particular discussion out is to pick up on something that Spencer said, which is with the universal proxy card, companies you know, may want to re-examine their, their proxy materials. And we're also seeing that with a lot of our public company clients, um, not just with their proxy materials, but also, you know, taking a look at their bylaws to make sure that they have the most state-of-the-art advanced notice provisions and other requirements for nominating stockholders to follow if they're going to be putting forth director candidates. And as we've been having these conversations with our clients, um, you know, many of them are amending their their bylaws to get to that sort of state of the art spot where um, you know they're moving their bylaws in a direction to keep up with the change in the the requirements. And recently, uh, we've seen a significant increase in the number of companies rejecting dissident nominations for failures to comply, and case law that's supporting the board's decisions in those circumstances. So sort of a living, breathing piece of all this is making sure that boards are staying on top of um, not only their, their proxies and disclosures, but also the requirements in their bylaws that, that stockholders have to follow to make nominations. Great. Well, thank you both for all of your insights on the state of shareholder activism today. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.